Good morning, church. <clears throat> Good to see everybody out here this morning. Please uh, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I've titled this The Inescapable Duel, and it will be part one. Um, but I'll read the whole text. So Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. If you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, starting in verse 1. Matthew writes this. He says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give His angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and began to serve him. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you... Um, for giving us this text because there is so much here, so much here for us to see. I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see what is here in your word, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand what you have written. Lord, we pray that uh, you would remove me as much as possible so that I don't mess this up. We pray, God, that just as we see you in your word, that we marvel at who you are, that we marvel at what you've done, Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, we love you more and more and increasingly and increasingly, and that we serve you more faithfully each and every day. We pray, Lord, that your word will make us more like Jesus. We pray for those who aren't saved, it will, you'll use your word to bring them into salvation. And we pray, God, in everything, you will be glorified. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray all this. Amen. Please have a seat. The temptation of Jesus Christ is one of the most intriguing events recorded in the Bible. Themes and events that flow out throughout the entire history of redemption, meaning throughout the entire biblical timeline, these themes all converge right here. This event truly is enormous. Understanding, and I'll just throw this out here for a disclaimer, understanding everything that's at work in this text is probably impossible. But grasping what we can from this text is truly enlightening. There is so much to ponder from this event that it's going to take me two sermons to finish it. Honestly, the stakes of this historical event were the highest in history. If even one thing would have gone wrong here, then salvation would be impossible and we'd all be lost. That alone demonstrates the gravity of our text. Now, the point of the text is very straightforward for the note takers out there. It's this, Jesus succeeds where all other humans have failed. Jesus succeeds where all other humans have failed. How? He overcomes both sin and Satan by defeating three temptations. That's what the text will show us. So Jesus succeeds where all other humans have failed because he defeats or conquers both sin and Satan by defeating three temptations. Now, our entire salvation depended on this victory that happens here. So it is a big deal. And for following along, this text flows in a real easy way. Jesus defeats three temptations. So you go first temptation, second temptation, third temptation. Straightforward, easy to follow, easy to understand. But even though it's straightforward, there are many questions that this text forces the reader to ask of it. And that is why it's going to take me two sermons. This morning, we're going to focus on a lot of those questions and issues, and the next time, we'll focus on the three temptations themselves. And so, I just want to get into it. I mean, this morning, we are coming to a very important event in the life of our Lord Jesus. Depending on how he would respond to this event, it would make or break his entire mission to come to the earth to seek and save the lost. Had he failed this event, everything would have been lost. 
we would have been lost. And because of that, there's so many dimensions to this text. I think there's at least four dimensions or angles to this text that we have to see, that we have to, to observe. First, you have the expositional dimension. That's what we normally do here, right? That's where we, we more or less go verse by verse and see what Matthew is saying and how he's saying it and how it's laid out, right? We got to look at it that way, okay? But then a second dimension, we have the theological dimension. In other words, like what does this text tell us about God? What does it tell us about the God-man, Jesus? What does it tell us about temptation and sin? There's a lot there that needs to be asked and answered. And then the third dimension, what does the text tell us about biblical theology? And simply put, the difference between theology and biblical theology is this. Theology asks the big questions about God. Biblical theology traces the answers to those questions from Genesis to Revelation. Like, how's, how does these ideas grow throughout the Scripture and get repeated again and again? That's biblical theology. There's a lot of biblical theology in this text, okay? And, and, and just to put it out there right now, without a clear understanding of what happened to Adam in the fall and what happened to Israel in the wilderness, if you don't understand that, you will miss the bigger biblical meaning of this text, of this event. And then finally, the fourth dimension to the text is how do we apply it? It's the dimension of, of, of application, okay? Now, rarely... As a pastor, do I come to a text that immediately has all four of these dimensions just shouting at you from the pages? Usually there's like two, maybe three, but to have all four, that's rare. And so that's why I have to split this into two parts. This morning, I'm only going to cover verses one and two because through them, I could address the theology and the biblical theology because it is richly saturated in this passage. And then next time I could deal with the exposition as we go through the three temptations themselves. But I'm telling you, even in splitting this this way, there is plenty to cover in both sermons. And so because of that, I think it would be best for me to skip my normal review of Matthew up to this point. I like doing the reviews, okay, because we are expositional preachers. If we're going to go verse by verse, we need to know what came before. We need to know where this fits in Matthew's bigger presentation, okay? But Again, I'll hit that uh, maybe next time. There's just a lot of big things going on in our text, okay? But I will say this, okay, before getting directly into it. This morning's text is the final event that must happen before Jesus could begin his ministry that brings salvation to the world. Everything in the book of Matthew up to this point has been leading us to this point. His miraculous conception and birth, his birthplace in Bethlehem, his lineage, his flight to Egypt, his return to Israel, his being raised in Nazareth, his baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, all of it leads us to this point. But I'm going to jump out even further than that. Every word of the Bible, starting in Genesis 1-1, is leading us to this point. It all converges here. All of it is up for grabs here. Now, what we saw last time is when Jesus was baptized, God publicly declared some huge things about him. He declared that all those Old Testament promises, they're now being fulfilled. He declared that the messianic era or the days of the Messiah have arrived. He declared that Jesus is both the Son of God and the servant of the Lord that are prophesied in the Old Testament. He declared that Jesus is the one who will save us from our sins because he's the atonement. He declared that Jesus is the bringer of the new heavens and the new earth. And he showed us that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And because of that, he is completely and entirely filled by the Holy Spirit. And all of this that was said in that baptism was in addition to what God already showed us, namely that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity become man. Now, all of that is important to know and remember because all of that, every single bit of it is what gets challenged by our enemy in this text. And if the challenge is successful, then everything God has been doing from Genesis 1 to now would get lost. And we would get lost right along with it. So again, that's why I say this is the inescapable duel. This is a, an event of the ages, okay? So with that, let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. Together, they're going to build the setting for us. And together, they're going to present to us the theological dimension and the biblical theological dimension of the text. There is so much we need to know about the setting if we're going to understand actually what's happening in the three temptations, okay? So look at verse 1 with me. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
Now, this first word, then, it lets us know that this was immediately after the baptism of Jesus. And I want you to think about it. The baptism of Jesus was the high point of his human life at this point, right? The Holy Spirit descended upon him, and the Father declared these magnificent things about him. Such a high point, such a moment, and yet it's cut short. But who cuts it short? God cuts it short. God cuts the moment short for Jesus, The very Holy Spirit that filled Jesus, it then tells us the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. That same Holy Spirit. In Mark's gospel, it tells us the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. So he is both led and pushed by God into the wilderness. Now, it is worth noting, because you'll never hear this from prosperity preachers, but it is worth noting that the very first thing that the Holy Spirit does upon entering Jesus is he drives him into this most difficult of situations. He leads Jesus into the Judean wilderness, one of the most desolate places on earth. If you look at the pictures, it looks hideous. It's jagged rocks, it's sharp edges, and it's foreboding cliffs are terrifying. It's scorpions, it's vipers, and it's wild beasts are dangerous. It's blistering heat by day, and it's freezing cold by night could break anybody after a short time. And it's not an easy place to navigate. It's 35 miles long, 15 miles wide. And yeah, if it was a straight plain and you had to walk across it, that wouldn't be too bad. But this was a labyrinth. It was a maze. Imagine being stuck in a maze of just horrible conditions that long. What about the food? It would be scarce. And even with what you could find, mainly bugs, Jesus had no intention of eating the whole time he was there. And just one more thing to add to this, one more layer. It was believed in that time that many demons dwelled in this particular desert and that they possessed the beasts, and that's why the beasts were wild. Mark tells us they were wild beasts. Now, the question is, does the New Testament support that idea? It does. When you look at people who demons possess in the New Testament, a lot of times they drive them into what? Desolate places. And when Jesus cast the many demons out of that one person, legion, where did they go? Into pigs. And so could they go into animals? Absolutely. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, Jesus said that when a demon leaves a person, it roams through waterless places. Waterless, a waterless place is this type of desolate wilderness. So my point with all that is Jesus was being driven into a place of both immense physical and spiritual danger and difficulty. At this moment, at this point in history, this was literally the worst place on earth. And something worth noting is the fact that Matthew says he was led up. That word up is noteworthy, okay, because it shows you that Matthew was an eyewitness. He was an Israelite. He lived there because guess what? If you're at the Jordan River and you get baptized, the only way to get into this wilderness is you have to hike upward. You have to go on uh, up in elevation. And so little details like that, every time you find them in the New Testament, pull that thread. Because what you're going to find is it's accurate to the geography, the history, and everything, which shows these are eyewitness accounts. They're not fabrications written by religious fanatics later. They're written by people who were there, whose eyes were looking at the very topography um, our text is describing. Okay, so eyewitnesses inspired by the Holy Spirit. Every time you see things like that, again, pull that thread. But anyway, our text doesn't only tell us that the Holy Spirit led Jesus there. It tells us why, okay? It gives us the purpose of this. Let's look at it again. It says he led him there, quote, to be tempted by the devil. That's why he was brought there. Now, the devil, we've we've heard of him. He is our great adversary, okay? He goes by many names. You could call him the devil or Satan. Devil is Greek, diabolos, and Satan, hashatan, is... uh, is Hebrew, they both mean the same thing, accuser or adversary. But he's also called the serpent and the dragon. He's also called the tempter and the father of all lies. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the leader of the fallen angels. God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by this guy. Now, that right there drops on us a lot of big theological questions. This just told us that Jesus was pushed into this wilderness by God, by the Holy Spirit, in order to be tempted by the devil. I mean, did we read that right? We did. So the question is, what's going on here? Is God tempting Jesus? And this needs to be answered. Now, before we directly answer it, I think it's very important that we understand this event in light of what James, the Lord's half-brother, wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about this very subject. Here's what he says, James chapter 1, 
Verse 13 and 14, he says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. So based on that, does God tempt anyone? No. So we cannot say that God tempted Jesus. Yet the text says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. But I want you to notice in our text, who does the tempting? Jesus is led out there to be tempted by who? The devil. The devil. Now, one thing you should know is that this word tempt in Greek, it's perazo. It could either mean to test or to tempt, which are two different things, okay? To test or to tempt. And context is what determines whether or not we're talking about testing or tempting. God tests people for certain. The Bible makes that clear, but he never tempts his people. Satan tempts God's people, but he doesn't test them, okay? But since God is sovereign, what we often see is he will use Satan's temptations as a test. So in such a case, Satan is the one tempting the person, not God. But then God uses Satan's evil plan, evil temptation. God says, you know what? I'm going to use this as a test for my servant. This happened in the book of Job, where God tested Job through Satan's temptation. And the same thing is happening here with Jesus. So the word actually means both testing and tempting here. You just have to apply the right meaning to the right person. The testing comes from God and the tempting comes from Satan. So that answers that. And I'm going to just tell you that's the easiest question this morning. But then that leads us to another question. James said that God cannot be tempted by evil. And the Bible clearly presents Jesus as God in the flesh. After all, in chapter 1, Matthew told us that Jesus is Emmanuel, or God with us. So if God cannot be tempted, but Jesus is God, then how could Jesus be tempted? This is a very important question, and this is where we need to be really precise in our language. Saying that God cannot be tempted is not the same thing as saying the God-man cannot be tempted. Okay? When Jesus added humanity to himself, he henceforth and forever now had two natures subsisting in the one person. And these two natures do not blend with each other. What I mean is he's not 50% God and 50% man. He is 100% God, 100% man. Divinity is divinity. Humanity is humanity. You don't end up with a third substance called humanity or dumanity. They don't exist. Okay? No, you have divinity is divinity right here. Humanity is humanity right here. Both their own thing, but they subsist in this one person, Jesus Christ. Okay? So that means Jesus, as God, everything that applies to divinity applies to Jesus, as it always has. Okay? But now also everything that applies to humanity applies to Jesus since he added humanity to himself. So let me illustrate it this way. Divinity does not sweat, sleep, or get hungry, but humanity does, okay? Humanity does. And since Jesus has a human nature, he sweat, slept, and hungered, even though he's still God, okay? Likewise, even though divinity cannot be tempted, humanity can be tempted. And since Jesus has a human nature, he was tempted, not only does our text clearly declare this, but other texts will say the same, and I'll quote some of them a little later, okay? So Jesus as a human can be tempted. God can't be tempted, but the God-man can because of the man part of this, right? Now, another thing we need to remember is that during Jesus's earthly ministry, he voluntarily chose not to use his divine nature, but instead to fulfill the mission as a man. So he was especially vulnerable to temptation. Now, you might be wondering, wait a minute, how is this possible? Jesus was without sin. He didn't have a sin nature, so he would not desire sinful things. After all, the very desire of sinful things would be sin. That's what James showed us, okay? But this is where we need to be precise yet again. When Adam and Eve were first created, did they have a sin nature? No. Were they sinful? No. But could they still be tempted? Yes, and they were tempted and they failed. So that means it is possible in this first creation to be tempted 
even if one is perfect and without sin. Now, that will all change when God brings forth the new creation. We will all be sinless, we'll be in glorified bodies, and it will be impossible for us to sin. But in this creation right now, even before the fall, it was possible for temptation and sin, even for those who had no sin nature. Now, I say this because we need to first think of Jesus's temptation in comparison to Adam's temptation. It is the temptation of someone who is perfect and without a sin nature. That makes it different in many respects from our temptations, okay? The temptations of Christ in and of themselves were not sinful. I mean, think about the nature of the temptations. We read them this morning. Wanting to eat when you're hungry is not sinful. Wanting God's protection when you're vulnerable is not sinful. And the Messiah wanting to rule the nations, since they're promised to him, is not a sinful desire, okay? Our desires, in contrast, usually are sinful, As William Shedd said, they usually come from pride, ambition, envy, malice, hatred, anger, jealousy, gluttony, lust, and I could keep going and going. Most of our temptations come from those. Therefore, in most cases, our very temptations are sins because we're desiring something that's sinful, okay? That is not so with Christ. He did not have a bend or desire toward those evil things because he was perfect, but he could still be tempted. How? Satan was trying to get him to acquire these three good things in a way that would dishonor the Father, okay? And so if Jesus were to listen to Satan, then he would gain these three good desires through sin because he would dishonor the Father. It's always a sin to dishonor the Father. So that's what Satan's trying to do here. Get Jesus to take these good things the wrong way. That way it would make him a sinner. So it is a true temptation, but it is also different from the temptation that normally comes our way. But, there's always a but, okay? On the other hand, these specific temptations that Satan is using, they are not exactly the same as the ones that were hurled at Adam and Eve. In fact, these temptations are the ones that were thrown at Israel in the wilderness after God had liberated them from slavery in Egypt. So in that respect, because those were regular people with sin natures being tempted, so in that respect, the temptations will be presented in a manner that's common to us, okay? The first temptation is not just about eating bread. It's the temptation for independence from God, for Jesus to do this on his own terms. The second is not just about protection. It's to test God. And the third is to betray God with idolatry, the three big failures of Israel in the wilderness, Those are evil temptations. We deal with these temptations all the time. And this shows you just how crafty and clever Satan is. Christ, as the Son of God, has no evil desires. So he can't be tempted exactly like us. But Jesus rightly desires food, divine protection, and his inheritance as the Messiah. There's nothing wrong with that. So Satan takes those three good things and ties them to three specific sins committed by Israel in the wilderness. Independence from God, testing God, and idolatry. That then makes the temptation of Christ not like our temptation, but at the same time like our temptation. And the Bible's filled with paradoxes like this. Only a clever adversary can launch such an attack. And of course, this level of attack is necessary because this is a test. See, Satan may try his hardest to tempt Christ, but God is using this to test his Messiah. The temptation has to be this way because, as we'll see later when we look at the biblical theology um, stuff, Christ has to overcome both Adam and Israel's failure. In Jesus' role as a new Adam, the temptation is not like ours. But in Jesus' role as a new Israel, the temptation is kind of like ours. And I'll come back to this shortly. But we first need to answer another really big theology question. Even if Jesus could be tempted because of his human nature, was it possible for Jesus to sin here? Like, could have he failed? Could have Jesus sinned here? I mean, again, you might say, no, because he's sinless, but so was Adam, right? And yet it was possible for Adam to sin, and he did sin, and we're living in the consequences of that. So again, does the same apply to Jesus? I think it's better for us to frame this maybe this way. God ordained in eternity past that Jesus would save us from our sins. And since that is the case, Jesus was going to pass this test because it was predestined. It was ordained 
that Jesus would pass it. So does that mean it was impossible for him to sin? That's what it would mean, right? Kind of. But we shouldn't oversimplify this. And so I'm going to pull some help from R.C. Sprawl here because he explained this in a really, really good way. He reminds us that even though God ordains the ends, meaning the very things that are going to happen, he ordains them and they're going to happen. He also ordains the means, meaning the how they're going to happen. Okay, He ordains both. So in terms of the ordained ends, meaning what was going to come to pass, in terms of the ends, it was impossible for Adam not to sin and for Israel not to fail. And likewise, it was impossible for Jesus to sin and to fail. Okay, Why? Because God ordained the ends. Namely, Adam and Israel would fail, but Jesus would succeed so that he could save us. But in terms of the ordained means, meaning how God was going to have this happen, he made Adam a creature that was free to make moral choices, and it was through the means of Adam's own choice that the fall would happen. God did not coerce Adam into doing this, okay? Adam chose to eat the fruit. He wanted to eat the fruit, but he had a real and true ability not to eat it, okay? And so it was through the means of his freedom to choose that God's ordained end happened. And likewise, Jesus as a man could choose to sin, theoretically, like Adam did, but it was through the means of Jesus' free choice to perfectly obey God that God's ordained end happened. So with that said, the answer is yes, kind of, okay? It was theoretically possible for Jesus to sin because these temptations were real. They represented a real challenge to God's mission to seek and save the lost. If there was no real threat or no real possibility, then this event would be meaningless. But this text presents it as anything but meaningless. So again, and I often say this to us, we have to learn to think with two hands which was an expression uh, that the Jews use a lot um, to think about paradoxes, okay? In the grand scheme of everything, it was determined that Jesus would pass this test, that he would not sin. So in that sense, it was impossible for him to sin. Hold that in this hand, okay? But also, in the grand scheme of everything, it was also determined that the means by which this would be accomplished is through Jesus having true freedom and true possibility of falling, and that he would overcome his test by his free choice not to fall. So in that sense, it was possible. Hold that in your second hand. Now, what do you do with them? Just leave them there. You can't put them together. You can't. Hold one in each hand and don't deny the other. Both are true. Know your role. Know your place. You're finite. You have a three-pound brain. You've lived only so long. You don't know anything. God is infinite. An infinite mind can hold this together. A finite mind can't. So what do you do? You humble yourself and say, I can ask no further because there's no way I could possibly know. So I'll hold both, one in each hand. That simple. Both are true. Okay? So all that covers the big theology questions. But this text also raises some of the big themes of biblical theology, as I was telling you. Jesus is being presented as a new Adam, a sinless person who will be tempted by the devil. If the new Adam is going to undo the work of the old Adam, if he's going to fix what Adam broke, then he needs to succeed where the first had failed. So this theme of a new Adam has to press forward in Scripture. The very fact that it says he was driven into a place specifically to be tempted by the devil is meant to make the reader mentally go back to the Garden of Eden and think of Satan's temptation of our first parents. Well, if this was to be a fair test, things should be even, right, between Adam and Jesus. The conditions should be exactly as they were for Adam. Well, that's if it must be a fair test. This isn't going to be a fair test. To make the success of Jesus so much grander Then the failure of Adam, this won't be a fair test. And what do I mean? Well, it's not even close to being even. Think of Adam. Adam was in a perfect, lush garden with perfect gourmet fruit. The environment was perfect. The temperature was just right. The animals were not wild. And there was literally nothing in the world working against Adam at all. Jesus, in contrast, was in one of the most desolate wildernesses on earth. It was entirely afflicted with the results of the fall and the curse. The ground produced no crops, the animals were wild, and the temperatures were extreme. Big difference right there, location. Okay. Next, Adam would have a nice full stomach since God said you may eat from every tree in the garden. So Adam would be full and strong. 
Yet we will see in verse 2 that Jesus was on a very, very empty stomach. Okay? He ate nothing for 40 days. When one is hungry, one is more prone to sin due to irritability and desperation. Happens to me all the time. If I'm an hour late on my lunch, you know, doesn't make it right. Okay, but this, this puts him in a weakened condition. Jesus, okay, Jesus was tested in, oh, actually Adam, going back to Adam though, he was tested in the midst of companionship. He was not alone. He had another perfect and sinless human being with him who was actually made to be his perfect partner and to compliment him. He had the best teammate there. Yet Jesus was tested in isolation. He was all by himself. He had no other human to look at or talk to for at least 40 days or for 40 days, right? And this, and this was in this unforgiving environment. And then finally, Adam was tested when there was no sin anywhere in the world. The world was entirely unaccustomed to the idea of sin. There was no concept of it that could be used to draw someone to it. Jesus, in contrast, was tested in a world where sin was everywhere. There were billions of possible sins to commit. And he had 30 years to see a lot of sin and a lot of people. And when you're around something a lot, doesn't it start to seem a little normal to you? Well, Jesus was going to be tempted with sin when sin was the normal condition of the world at this point. Very different from Adam's temptation. So clearly, this is not an even test like with Adam. And one more thing to consider. I know I said finally, but there's one more I'm going to add. When Adam was tested, he was immortal with no physical weaknesses, and he was living in a world where nothing could hurt him. Okay, Jesus even though he had a sinless nature like Adam, he still entered the world with the weakness of a man after the fall, meaning the world could hurt Jesus. It could kill him. That's going to happen later. The second half of Romans chapter 8, verse 3 tells us this. It says that God condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. This is how God saves us. But the key there is he sends him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not with the sin nature. What it means is he's sent in the likeness of, he's born with the mortality and the weaknesses that we all have since the fall. Okay? So Jesus was willing to undergo the same test as Adam, but in a much weaker human condition. And he was willing to do this in an environment that was fully cursed physically and spiritually. And he was willing to do this at the point of absolute starvation. And rather than one temptation, he says, give me three. Okay, he'll take on three. So indeed, the success of Jesus is so much grander than the failure of Adam. Now, biblically speaking, Jesus is being compared to Adam as the new Adam that succeeds where the first Adam failed. But that is not the only biblical comparison. In the first three chapters of Matthew, I think he's gone to great lengths to demonstrate that Jesus is also a new Israel. He's the fulfillment of Israel. I'm not going to rehearse everything we saw in the first three chapters. We're going to get plenty in our text. But it makes sense. If Jesus is going to fulfill Adam, it makes sense for him to fulfill Israel too. And the reason for that is Israel itself was a new Adam. Israel was a recapitulation of Adam. And here's what I mean. Think about it. Adam, as a direct creation of God, was called the son of God. Adam had no human parents, okay? So he's directly created by God. He's going to be called the son of God. In the gospel of Luke, Luke gives the genealogy of Jesus. And it goes backward from Jesus saying, you know, this person's the son of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so. And it brings us all the way back to the beginning. And look how it ends. Luke chapter 3, verse 38. Son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Okay, so notice what it's calling Adam there. So you have Adam being called the son of God, which makes sense. He's a direct creation made in the very image of God, exhibiting God's image as perfectly and as powerfully as a creature can. Okay, so Adam's called son of God, but Adam fails. And then later we see that Israel is called son of God, God's firstborn, like Adam was. Exodus 4.22, God tells Moses, he says, and you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Okay, Israel is my firstborn son. So clearly Israel is being cast as a new Adam. Adam broke everything in the garden and then God promised 
later that he would save the nations through Israel, through the seed of Abraham. So Israel then is declared to be God's firstborn son, corporately, just as Adam once had that role. And then if you think of the tabernacle and the temple that Israel was called to build, it was an echo of the Garden of Eden. And what do I mean? Well, you read Genesis, Adam was expelled on the east side. And what was blocking his way back in on that east side? Cherubim. Okay, think about the tabernacle and the temple. You had to enter on the east side and you had to pass through a curtain that had what on it? Cherubim. And then when you get inside the tabernacle or the garden, you find this menorah whose fire never goes out. It represents eternal life. And the menorah was said to be fashioned like an almond tree. Okay, so you have this tree of life in, once you pass in, through the cherubim, you're next to this model of a tree of life. And then right next to that is the Holy of Holies where God himself dwelled. If Adam were allowed to go back into the garden, he'd pass through the cherubim. He'd be in the midst of the tree of life and God would be in the presence of the garden. It was very clear what God was doing with the temple. He was showing that this is meant to undo, uh, to, to reverse the failure of Adam. But then what happens with Israel? They fail. They fail miserably in their role, just like Adam. Satan destroyed Adam with temptation, causing this perfect image bearer of God to become weak and lose his position. And so then God says, all right, Israel. And then Satan successfully tempts Israel, making the nation now unable to carry out God's mission of saving the world. So the Messiah then is meant to bring these two figures, Adam and Israel, together and reverse their failure. I was talking with Pastor Josh through text message on this earlier, and and, and he put this very eloquently, so I told him I was going to steal it, right? Because we were talking about this. And he said, well, what you have here is you had two sons of God and rebellion, but with Christ we have one son of God and perfection. Boom, stolen, credit given. That was well said. I'm like, that's exactly what this text is showing, okay? Jesus, as the new version of both, he's going to save the world as both the new Adam and the new Israel, okay? So verse 1 was the clear echo back to Adam. Verse 2 will give us this clear echo towards Israel. So let's take a look at verse 2. It says this. It says, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Which makes sense. I'd be hungry after fasting 40 minutes. But he (laughs) fasted 40 days and 40 nights and he's hungry. But I want you to hone in on the 40 days and 40 nights. Not only does that make us think back to Moses fasting 40 days and 40 nights before God gave Israel the law, but it also makes us think back to Elijah, who also fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and there's going to be an angel feeding him tied in with that event. So keep that in mind when we finish the text next time, okay? But Moses and Elijah, although they are an echo here, they are not the primary Old Testament echo here that we're supposed to think of. Where is Jesus? He's in the wilderness, and the number 40 is attached to him being in the wilderness. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, and when did Israel go into the wilderness? Right after they passed through the Red Sea, and Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 2, or chapter 10, verse 2, tells us that passing through the Red Sea, they were baptized into Moses. So it was after Israel's baptism of sorts that they entered the wilderness for 40 years. Well, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River right before this, and then he enters into the wilderness. Israel is baptized, in a sense, by the first Israelite prophet, and Jesus is baptized by the last prophet of the old Israelite prophet of the old covenant era, right? Israel was led by God immediately into the wilderness after that. Jesus is led by God immediately into the wilderness after his baptism. Israel in the wilderness 40 years, Jesus in the wilderness 40 days and nights. Loved ones, these are not coincidences. These are meant to be there. We're supposed to be thinking of this stuff. We're supposed to see the testing of Jesus to be equivalent to the testing of Israel. Just like we're supposed to see the temptation of Jesus as equivalent to the temptation of Adam. And it is no accident that Israel had three huge failures in their time in the wilderness, and yet Jesus will face three huge temptations, and he will overcome them. And just like the comparison between Adam and Christ, the comparison between Israel and Christ is not an even comparison. It's not a fair test. Israel was never forced to go 40 days without food. They went a few days without food and they grumbled. Jesus went 40 days without food. Israel was not isolated because they were all out there. They were with each other. They had each other. 
Israel also had a visible expression of God in their presence every single day with a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. They could always look and say, oh, God is with us. He's in our midst. Jesus doesn't have any of that here. He was not merely hungry, but he was starving. He was not with two million of his countrymen to where he could feel socially fulfilled. He was all by himself. And he was not able to look up at any moment and see his father as a cloud of smoke or a pillar of fire. Yet, with much better conditions, Israel fails. And in much worse conditions, Christ succeeds. And what makes this connection between Jesus and Israel even clearer is the fact that Jesus will respond to Satan's three temptations. We'll see this next time. He will respond to Satan's three temptations by quoting Scripture. But more specifically, Jesus will quote from the book of Deuteronomy all three times. But even more specifically, he's going to bring all three quotes from a small little part of Deuteronomy. One little section near the beginning, chapters 6, 7, and 8. All of his quotations come from that little sliver. And I want you to see what God says as he's wrapping up that section. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. This is what Moses is saying. God is saying this through Moses. He says, remember that the Lord your God led you. So God led. He led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. And then gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. A very, very clear statement is being made here. Okay, God, according to that passage, led Israel into the wilderness for the 40 years in order to test them. God is the one that let Israel experience hunger so that they would learn that man does not live on bread alone. In fact, Jesus is going to quote that to Satan during the first temptation. And so my point is, it's as clear as day from Deuteronomy that Jesus' wilderness temptations are a recapitulation of, of, of Israel's, okay? The same circumstances are at play. And it's no accident that Jesus responds to the devil's three temptations, tests, with, well, God's three tests through Satan's three temptations. Jesus responds with quotations from this part of Deuteronomy where that is stated. Without picking up on these, these callbacks to Adam and Israel, you can't truly understand the biblical significance of the temptation of Jesus. At most, you would just say, hey, Jesus was tempted like we are, and he passed it. And that's true, and I don't want to minimize that. Let me quote a couple verses that say that. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says, For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Okay, because he suffered and was tempted, he could help people like us, right? And then two chapters later, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Which really is just showing his temptation was different than ours, but in some way it was the same. How could he be tempted in every way we are, yet without sin? Exactly what I told you earlier, okay? So yes, Jesus was tempted, and because he overcame that temptation, salvation is made available for us. But Matthew is meaning to communicate a lot more than that. It's meant to communicate that God's entire mission from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 on hinged on this moment. It is meant to teach us that salvation is a million times more than just saving individual souls from going to hell. And that's often how we present it. Okay, trying to save individual souls from going to hell. Instead, salvation is all about God reversing everything that Adam broke. Humanity itself will be reconciled to God. The broken creation will also be reconciled when God brings a new heaven and a new earth. This is meant to remind us that God promised to bless the whole world through Abraham's seed, which is both Israel and Christ. Specifically, it will be Christ, but it's, it's, the Old Testament shows us it's both. Both have a role to play. Okay, That's why Isaiah presents the servant of the Lord first as Israel, and then later prevents, presents the servant of the Lord as an individual Messiah, Christ. And that's why Exodus and Hosea present Israel as God's son coming out of Egypt. And we see Jesus as God's son coming out of Egypt, right? And so Jesus is ultimately the one who brings this salvation. Think about it. If the promise is all the nations of the world will be blessed through your seed, bless is the opposite of curse. The world is cursed 
through Adam, but it's going to be blessed through Jesus, which means the curse will be removed, undone, all aspects of it through Jesus. That means Jesus has to reserve, or he has to reverse not only Adam's failure, but since he's a recapitulation of Israel, he also has to reverse Israel's failure as the individual servant of the Lord. Now, why does it work this way? Because God's mission, and this might hurt some feelings, this might step on some toes because we live in a a society that, that makes you think it's all about you. But here's the thing. God's mission isn't about just saving you. It's not. His mission's about redeeming earth and saving people from all nations. His mission is about building a gigantic new humanity headed by a new Adam. It's about redeeming Israel, the corporate servant, through the perfect Israelite Jesus, the individual servant. It's about making this new humanity from all the nations by saving Israel and then adding the nations to Israel and its promises. Okay, And through that, it's about the restoration of all things. And therefore, God, through this perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, he must recapitulate Adam and Israel perfectly. The work of the first two sons of God that failed must be reversed by the work of the true son of God, the eternal son of God, who succeeded. And the only way that could happen is if the true son of God overcomes the same temptations that defeated the other two. The true son of God has to overcome the dreadful opponent, Satan, that shipwrecked the other two. And in so doing, He can build a new humanity with a restored Israel, united with the nations, and then one day bring us a new earth, which is exactly what the Bible promises. But first, he must overcome these temptations. This is the first big test. There's one more to come, the cross. He has to overcome these temptations, and he has to overcome the cross. And good news, loved ones, he overcame both. And we'll see that as we get through the the whole book of Matthew, okay? Now, this does, in my opinion, correct a lot of bad but well-meaning evangelism out there. You'll, you'll see this well-meaning but wrong evangelistic plea. Sometimes you'll hear people tell someone, they'll be talking to a lost person, and they'll say that, look, Jesus died on the cross, just hoping that people would believe with the possible that no one would believe. And if you were the only person on earth to believe, Jesus still would have died just for you. And that's what they say, and it sounds nice, but it's not biblical, okay? It is sentimental rubbish, Okay, Jesus died for all those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what the Bible says. And their names were written when? Before the foundation of the world. That's in Revelation. Christ didn't die to save an individual. Yes, he does save individuals, but he didn't come just for me. Okay, he died to save a people, a giant new humanity. Jesus didn't die so that I might have my individual emotional needs met as a ghost in heaven forever, as if this is just a testing ground, but eternity is as a ghost in heaven. No, that is pagan Platonism. That's what Plato said. The Bible paints a very different picture. Jesus died so that he could redeem the entire cosmos itself, a new heavens and a new earth, and bring this new creation where we will be resurrected with glorified, perfect, immortal bodies and live in God's presence forever as people who could never die. That is what salvation is. This wasn't just a rescue mission for me. It was a rescue mission for humanity itself. Not all humanity because not all is going to receive him, but it is a rescue mission for a new humanity. In Jesus, God united himself with mankind in order that through him he could then unite mankind with God and adopt us into his own Trinitarian household. I mean, he's adopting us, right? So yes, he does save individuals. You come into this as an individual. He calls out the lost by summoning them to be part of that new humanity. But the emphasis is God's covenant with his people. And we're part of that, and we're supposed to be calling people into this salvation, into God's glorious people, and into God's glorious future that he's making for us. Now, yes, when we call people to salvation, it is by grace alone, through faith alone. That's the only way anybody could be saved. And the reason why it is that way is because Jesus alone is the one who passed this temptation. And Jesus alone is the one who overcame the cross and death and all our enemies. Now, Satan, when you think about our enemy here, He was like a lion salivating for meat when he saw God become flesh. Satan can never tempt God as God. That's impossible. Satan can never have even an illusion of power over God as God is God, right? 
But Satan could tempt man. Satan could have the appearance of power over man. Before Adam fell, and I don't think we think about this enough, but before Adam fell, Satan was weaker than Adam. He had to be. Satan's just an angel. Adam was a perfect, indestructible creature, uniquely made in the image of God to perfectly reflect God's own image. How can a mere angel assail that? He couldn't. That's why Satan didn't walk into the garden and challenge Adam to a boxing match. He would have got handled. I'm absolutely convinced of that. You know, that's why Romans 3 says we've sin- all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What glory? The glory that we had before the fall. Satan could not have assailed that. So what does he do? He knows, though, even though Adam's a perfect image bearer of God, he's still a creature. And a creature could be beaten. A creature could sin. So he was subtle. He tempted him. That's how he beats Adam, through temptation. Okay? And so what was Adam's was stolen through that temptation. Satan tempted him and destroyed him. And now we are lower than the angels, as the scripture says. But Jesus, or Paul, in 1 Corinthians says, one day when we're resurrected, we'll be judging angels. So again, one day it will be restored, but now, right now, because of Adam's failure, we're less than them. So it looked like Satan's planned work. So then God calls Israel as a special nation. He calls them out, forgiven and adopted by God, but they could still be defeated too, even though they had the word of God. The very word that Jesus is going to use to defeat Satan, Israel had that, but they're going to fail. They're going to fail. So Satan has been defeating humans for all of history. So when he sees God become flesh, when he sees as a man, Emmanuel, God with us, he now sees an opportunity that never availed him before. This is a chance for him to tempt God since God added human nature to himself. This is a chance for him to, in an illusion, exercise power over God. He doesn't really because God is sovereign over everything. But in Satan's mind, I'm convinced he thought, finally, I've got power over God. If God is fixing what humanity broke, but he's doing it as a man himself, then Satan would think, I've beat man before. I could beat him again. And if I beat this man, I beat God. And I beat him forever. This, this was like, this was bait for Satan that he could not resist. So he is going to bring a temptation greater than any has ever faced. This is his one chance. And this guy hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's alone in the worst place on earth. This is his chance. And yet, thanks be to our God that Satan loses because our Savior is perfect. Even as a man, even as a starving man, he is unbeatable. And it is for that reason, and that reason alone, any of us are saved. So, that is where I'm going to stop, verse 2. And you might be wondering, okay, what can I apply here? Nothing, okay? The application will come next time. There isn't much we're being called to apply in terms of how we live. Instead, here's what I will say. We're being called to adore our Savior. We're being called to marvel at Him. And honestly, we're being called to trust the Word of God itself. Not only will we see Jesus overcome this temptation by quoting the Word of God, quoting and obeying the Bible, but what we should have seen in everything that's been said this morning is that the Bible truly is the Word of God. Think of how all these themes from all over the Bible converge in this one moment. Man can't make this stuff up. We could not produce something like this. Why? Because the Bible's not just written by a single human author. And even if you take a brilliant author like J.R.R. Tolkien in the Lord of the Rings series, he still contradicts himself. Tolkien nerds point it out all over. The, all over okay? But here, we don't have a single work by a single guy. We have an anthology written by multiple people. We have 66 books written over 1,600 years by 45 different authors on three different continents and three different languages of all these different walks of lives and education levels. Most of these guys never knew each other, never met each other. They're writing their books independently for whatever issue they're dealing with. And then later we compile these all together. And what do we have? A coherent storyline that all points to one guy, one savior. Is that even possible? Can humans do that? No. And not only does this anthology have the single unified storyline that converges in our text this morning, but it has hundreds of detailed prophecies that predict the future with perfect precision. Again, can man do that? No. And yet that's exactly what we have with the Bible in our text, in my opinion, shows us that. When we see all this stuff happening to Jesus, when it's the culmination of all what the Bible says. Furthermore, The Bible presents a coherent position on every major ethical and philosophical issue of life. Now, 
rather than just asking rhetorically, can man do something like this? Let me tell you, they've tried. There's another anthology out there called The Great Western Classics. This was a human attempt at such an anthology. They took the works of Western civilization's greatest thinkers, they're the most intelligent people for the last 2,500 years, and they put it together in an, anth in, in an anthology from Plato all the way to Nietzsche. Now, you have to ask yourself, if you read through it, is there a coherent worldview? No. Is there a coherent philosophy and ethics in this anthology? No. Is there a unified storyline? No. Are there prophecies fulfilled throughout history in it? No. It has none of that. In fact, its authors are contradicting each other left and right on major issues, and there's no meta-narrative that links it all together. That's what happens if you take random works by people and put them together. But this anthology, even though it had human authors writing individual books, it had a single divine author superintending and inspiring every word so that when it all came together, it creates exactly what we see, and that's what made it even possible for me to preach this text as I did this morning. Jesus being born at the right time in the right city to the right family in the right country and then showing up as an adult in the right year to be baptized. Last time I mentioned that Daniel makes it clear he was supposed to show up in the year 26 or 27 in between those years. That's when he showed up to be baptized. All these detailed prophecies. Let's just put this in perspective. Jesus Christ fulfilled 109 Old Testament prophecies during his first coming. The mathematical odds of just one man fulfilling even eight of these prophecies is one in 100 million billion. That number is millions of times greater than the total number of people who've ever even lived on this planet. So actually, it's impossible that any single person could even fulfill eight of these. But let's Put this in a picture form. This would be like taking the entire state of Texas, a very big state, stacking silver dollars all over the state, two feet high, randomly marking one of them, and then a blindfolded guy picking that one marked court or silver dollar up on his first try. Those are the odds of one guy fulfilling just eight prophecies, not 109. Mathematician Peter Stoner calculated the odds of someone fulfilling 48 prophecies, which isn't even half of the 109. And the number or the odds is one in a trillion, 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 trillion. I was not saying that to be obnoxious. There's that many trillions you had to put. There's not even a real number for this. That's more than the total amount of atoms that exist in the universe. And that's only less than half of the prophecies. And what I'm saying is Jesus overcoming Satan's temptations is just one more to add to that list. So Christian, because of that, marvel at him. Trust the salvation that he provides. Think deeply on the theological issues that have been raised today. And remember forever these insights of biblical theology that we've seen. And then marvel at your God. And very importantly, take his word seriously. Because it is serious. No other holy book, no book of philosophy, nothing does what this does. This stands alone, okay? So make your quest to know God better and better. Make that quest your top priority. Search these scriptures daily for such great treasure. Now, next time, we're going to take a look, closer look at the three temptations, and we'll draw some important personal application from them. But for now, before I close, I just want to address any unbelievers here. You, you've heard it. You've heard it. Jesus alone passed these temptations. You haven't. You've sinned many times, just like me, okay? And God is a holy, righteous God. And if you stand before God guilty of your sin, he will judge you for all eternity because you've judged against an eternal, or you've sinned against an eternal God. So he must judge you for all eternity. But this is why Jesus came. This is why God himself came as a man to do what you failed to do, to earn perfect righteousness, to live and do exactly what a perfect person's supposed to do, never sinning once. Okay, And then to take the penalty of all who have sinned and believe on him, to take our penalty on himself and to be nailed to a cross where the Father will pour out his wrath on him so that he won't have to pour it out on us. But this is only given to those who believe. If you don't believe, then his wrath is going to be poured out on you rather than on Jesus. Okay, So it's real simple. God summons you to turn from your sins and to trust Jesus with your whole heart to believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, okay? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you turn from your sins, you will be saved. You will be part of this new creation, this new humanity. You'll be part of God's rescue mission, which is uh, amazing. But if you insist on your rebellion, you will stand alone, not before Satan in a wilderness, 
but before the Almighty God, before a lake of fire. And we don't want you to have to be there, okay? So we're going to pray, and then uh, the worship team is going to come up, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together after that. But as I'm praying, you could be praying to God. You could pray to God that, Lord, I'm turning away from my sin, and I'm believing in Jesus, okay? Receive him, and then afterwards, after service, come talk to me or any of the leaders, and we'll, we'll talk to you about the next steps, okay? But this is something you are called to do. Nobody can believe on your behalf. And so today, God has put this question to you. Will you believe? Your eternity depends on the answer. Let's go to our Lord in prayer.